And we're going to jump into our study of Ecclesiastes. So turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. It's the very end of our study we come to today um, that we've been into, uh, I think, 14 weeks or so now of going through um, this uh, wonderful um, book of Ecclesiastes. And it's the final six verses, the final six verses um, where we get to hear Solomon's conclusion of the whole matter. So that's what I've titled it today, the conclusion of the whole matter. Now, it's not my own uh, uh, title. Basically, that's what Solomon himself says in verse 13. But it's the conclusion of everything that he's been talking about. Um, Solomon's quest, just to kind of go back to the beginning, I mean, it's in the title of the slides that we put up every single week, has been what? It's been the quest for meaning, right? The meaning of of life, trying to answer that age-old question. And he sought the answer primarily through observation under the sun, right? I've been making a point of that throughout this. Primarily, he's been looking at the workings of man, living life under the sun, a horizontal view. Um, And occasionally, just occasionally throughout the book, Solomon has taken us to a view above the sun. He's taken us to a vertical uh, view. And most recently, he did that last week. At the beginning of chapter 12, well, really the end of chapter 11 and through the beginning of chapter 12 is what we covered last week. And if you remember, if you were tuning in, it was primarily a message to our young people. Uh, But many of you um, said it was still applicable to me. Um, And those of you that shared that, hey, you're still young. So be encouraged by uh, by that. Um, But he he told uh, the young people, rejoice, right? Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. He was encouraging young people to rejoice in their life and rejoice in the Lord while they were younger. And and the second R word was remember, right? Remember your creator. So to live in such a way while you're young that you live your life aware that there's a higher being than you and he's created you and uh, to live your life uh, for him. And the reason was is because this life would soon end. You only have one life to live for God. You only have one life to live for God. After that, uh, the two things given to you by your creator return to their source, right? Your bodies return to the earth and your spirit returns to God who gave it, is what he says in verse 7. But what then? And that's kind of where he ended last week. What then? What happens after that? What happens after your, your bodies go to the earth? And your spirits go to God. Well, Solomon has waited until the very, very end of his book to address that topic. So, let's read our passage and we will find out the conclusion of the whole matter. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright, words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. And further, my son, be admonished by these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. And keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let's uh, pray. 
God, we thank you so much for this time in your word. And Lord, we do pray, Lord, as we uh, get to see the end of this book now, we come to the conclusion of this book, Lord, that you would help us to really uh, be able to refine this and, and see truly what has been the overall point of our studies, Lord, and, and what you desire uh, of man. Lord, that really is, is really our all. We're to understand who you are and what you require of us. And Lord, Solomon lays it out very clearly for us, so help us to see it. Lord, we also recognize that, that these are divine words, that they're words of the Almighty Creator, written, inspired by the Holy Spirit through the, the pen of Solomon. But we recognize that we need your Spirit. So, Spirit, be with us today. Illuminate truth. Open up our hearts. Pierce us with truth. Help us to apply what we learned today, that we might live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here there's just a really easy outline and a, a really easy summary. If you remember the kind of the, the, the main theme that Solomon has been coming back to is sort of the meaninglessness of life, right? The vanity of life, looking at life under the sun. And then as we try to contemplate what God's doing through all this, as we contemplate God's work, we really can't. We can't understand God's work. And so he is going to take the three characters of this book and summarize their whole mission, their whole work. He's going to take the preacher himself. He's going to take man, that's all of us, and God. We're going to look at the preacher's work, man's work, and God's work. So let's begin with the preacher's work here in verse 9. The preacher's work. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and set out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher, you might remember going back to week one, the Hebrew title of this book, Koheleth. Koheleth, that's the title, right? It means one who gathers or uh, calls uh, the people together. And the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses the term ecclesiastes. That's where we get that uh, word. And it just means preacher. So remember, the preacher is the title of this whole uh, book. Um, and, and, and really, that's derived from ecclesia, which means assembly or called out ones. It's the church, isn't it? Uh, so the title refers to the one who addresses the assembly, and that is the preacher, Solomon himself. And if you remember, this title, preacher, was used three times in chapter 1. And now, here, as we get to chapter 12, it's used three times in chapter 12. And guess what? It only appeared one other place in the entire book, and that was in chapter 7, verse 27. I have it for you here. It says, here is what I found, says the preacher. And then he goes on to tell us what he found. So it's as if the beginning, he says, I'm the preacher and I'm going to tell you what I'm doing. I'm launching out on a mission to, to find out the meaning of life. And then somewhere in the middle, almost exactly in the middle, slightly off, but just, just about right in the middle, chapter seven, he reminds us, okay, here's what I found thus far, right? Here's my conclusions thus far. It's almost as if he's saying, right, I've been, I've been on this mission. I've been trying to find an answer to something and here's what I found thus far, and remember, I'm the preacher. <clears throat> now, we get to chapter 12, and he uses that title again, three times in chapter uh, 12. Now, he's emphasizing a major point here, and I don't want you to miss this. He says, the preacher was wise. 
Now, he had informed us of that in chapter 1, right? In fact, anyone who knows anything about Solomon, you know that he was known for what? His wisdom. That's right, right? He was wise. And in chapter 1, verse 16, it says this, I communed with my heart, saying, Look, I've attained greatness, and I've gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge. So Solomon himself says that he had more wisdom than anyone who had lived before uh, him. Now, we don't need to go through the whole story again, but you might remember that God appeared to, to Solomon in a dream by night, and he offered Solomon anything that he wished, and um, Solomon asked for wisdom. But I want to remind you of the Lord's reply to that request. It's in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 12. He says, Behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. Now, I'm reminding you of that because Solomon is reminding us of this. He's saying the preacher was wise, but he wasn't just wise. He was the wisest man who ever lived. There was not anyone who lived before him that was more wise, nor has there lived anyone beyond him that has been more wise. None shall arise after you. So why this need to re-emphasize the fact that Solomon had unparalleled wisdom. This is hugely important. Look at verse 9 again. Okay? Because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. It's because he was wise. Why is that important? That he was wise and therefore taught the people. Here's why it's important. Because the person of wisdom in the Old Testament assumed a leadership office, if I can say it that way. He was a teacher. He was a preacher. And in Israel, it was a position of leadership. Now, you might remember the prophet Jeremiah. And the prophet Jeremiah was under attack by his, his enemies. And when they attack him in, in, in Jeremiah 18, 18, this is, this is what it says. It's very important. Jeremiah 18, 18. Then they said, come and let us devise plans against Jeremiah. For the law shall not perish from the priest nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come and let us attack him with the tongue, and let us not give a a heed to any of his words. Now leave that slide up for a minute, because I want people to see those three things there, okay? I want you to see that they talk about the priest and his law, and that that law won't depart from the priest. They talk about the counsel that comes from the wise, that won't depart from him. They talk about the word that won't depart from the prophet. Those three things are set in stone. Those three things are how the Lord, those positions of leadership, would would reveal his will to Israel. And even the enemies of Jeremiah say, look, no one's going to stop a priest from from having the law and and, and making the law known. No one's going to stop the counsel coming from the wise, and no one's going to stop a word of God coming from a prophet. You just can't do that. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to attack Jeremiah. We'll just go after him and his reputation. We'll attack him with the tongue. And we're just not going to listen to what he says. Does that make sense? So those are three leadership offices mentioned. Priest, the wise, and the prophet. Now, I don't want you to get confused with prophet, priest, and king. We are very familiar with those. Prophet, priest, and king in the Old Testament. You can take that verse down now. Um, but those, those three offices, certainly Jesus fulfilled those, right? He, he was the ultimate prophet, ultimate priest, and ultimate uh, king. Um, uh, what I'm saying here with the wise, the wise... Some say maybe it wasn't actually an official office because certainly you could have a wise priest, a wise prophet, a wise king. Um, That 
It very well may be, but at the same time, we do seem to see in these verses, and I'll show you another one in a minute, that show us that the, the person of wisdom, or even it's recall, called the elder, had a position of teaching. All right? And I'm going to show you another example. That, this is a negative example because it's God's judgment upon Israel for those in those positions that abused those positions. And it's Ezekiel chapter 7, verse 26. He says this, disaster will come upon disaster and rumor will be upon rumor. Now notice, here's the three positions. Then they will seek a vision from a prophet, but the law will perish from the priest and counsel from the elders. So so look at those three again. You can see them right there, right? Even God himself says that the vision comes from the prophet, the law uh, from the priest, counsel from the elders. But those things would cease to happen because he's going to judge Israel. Right? That's how God communicated his will to Israel. They were rejecting his will. And so now he says, I'm just not, I'm done revealing my will to you because you're just not listening. So those three things will end and disaster will come upon uh, disaster. And we certainly see that even today, right? People were just refusing uh, to seek the will of the Lord. And so we see disaster upon disaster. What's the point here? Well, Solomon was a teacher. He was a teacher. He was the preacher Um, And he had a role to fulfill, and that role was to teach the people. Yes, he was a king, and we know him as a king, and we know him as a wise person, but his role was to teach the people. And that's what he concludes with here. He he lets us know, I've done it. That's what I've done. This is very, very important. You might remember King Jehoshaphat. Uh, He was a king that was committed to teaching the people. He knew that instruction was what the people needed. In fact, I want you to see it. It's in 2 Chronicles chapter 17. Just make that left-hand turn. You're going to go past uh, Proverbs and Psalm and Job, and you'll pass the Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. You'll come to 2 Chronicles chapter 17. 2 Chronicles chapter 17. All right? Now, this is when Jehoshaphat begins to reign in, in, in Judah. And this is what it says, beginning in verse 1. Then Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place and strengthened himself against Israel. And he placed troops in all the fortified cities of Judah and set garrisons in the land of Judah and in the cities of Ephraim, which Asa, his father, had taken. Now the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in his former ways of his father David. He did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments and not according to the acts of Israel. Therefore... The Lord established the kingdom in his hand, and all Judah gave presents to Jehoshaphat, and he had riches and honor in abundance. Almost sounds like Solomon, doesn't it? And his heart took delight in the ways of the Lord. Moreover, he removed the high places and wooden images from Judah. Now here's the biggest part. So all that sounds good. He's obeying the commandments. He's taken down the, the, the high places and all those things. Now look at verse 7. Also, in the third year of his reign, he sent his leaders... Okay, he sent his leaders, Ben-Hail, Obadiah, Zechariah, Nethanel, and Micaiah, to teach in the cities of Judah. And with them he sent Levites, Shemaiah, Nethaniah, Zebediah, Asahel, Shemiramoth, Jehonathan, Adonijah, Tobijah, and Tobadonijah, the Levites. And with them Elishama and Jehoram, the priests. So they taught in Judah and had the book of the law of the Lord with them. They went throughout all the cities of Judah and taught the people. Now, notice the two groups that he sent. He sent his leaders, 
Okay, his elders, no doubt, those would have been the men of wisdom, and he sent his Levites, the priests. Now, why didn't he send the prophets? Well, God sent the prophets, right? Prophets were men who spoke by God. But as a man, those were the two sort of teaching offices that he could get his hands on, and those were the two teaching offices that he utilized, and he recognized the importance of teaching the people. Well, that's what Solomon's trying to, to give us here. He's trying to say, listen, this is my role. Yes, I am a king, and yes, I was the most powerful king of Israel that Israel's ever seen, but my role was to teach the people because he was wise. Now, listen, he taught them, it says, knowledge. That doesn't just mean facts, okay? He didn't just say, now, this is when the world began and this is when this happened. Like, this is not just that, right? But it speaks of, um, uh, this idea of, of, of knowledge speaks of root, being rooted in something more than, than facts. And I'm not going to spoil it for you yet because he's actually going to reveal it um, at the end of the conclusion here. But, but notice that Solomon taught with skill. And he uses several words here. And I want to really unpack these because all this is very, very important, Okay. He, he taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. You see those three words there? He pondered, he sought out, and he set in order. Let's look at the first one. He pondered. The word pondered is azan. Azan. It's only used here in the Old Testament. And the word really means weighed. He, he weighed the words. In fact, if you have a King James Version, this is going to help you. It says he gave good heed. All right? So this is speaking about wisdom and, and knowledge that exists that he is thinking long and hard about. He's thinking long and hard and weighing the things that he has heard. Hmm. We are not wise men like Solomon. I understand that. But we can exercise wisdom. And particularly today... We're hearing a lot of things, aren't we, these days? There's a, there's a lot of things that these type of events that we're going through right now with the coronavirus uh, that, that bring out uh, the, the doomsday um, prophets and the teachers and the revelators and all of those things that are swarming the internet right now. Right? You, you, you have no end of these types of things out there today. And if I could just, by way of application... Just, just look at this. We, we, we need to give good heed to the teaching that we're hearing. We need to really weigh what we're hearing. That's what Solomon did. He didn't just take the first thing he heard and then ran with that. No, he weighed that. He pondered it. He gave good heed uh, to it. And we have to do that and, and, and weigh what we're, we're hearing and weigh it next to Scripture, next to truth. And so Solomon says he pondered that. He pondered over what he heard. And then he sought out knowledge as well. Sought out is the word haker. Haker. And it means examined or investigated or explored. So Solomon would explore. He, he would investigate truth of the matter uh, and seek out the actual answer. So he's, he's pondering what he's hearing. And then he goes and seeks out the answer. And I think we need to apply that method as well. Again, we're not Solomon, but this is, this is just a great example of what Solomon did. We certainly can do the same thing today, right? That as we hear things, we should really weigh those things, weigh what we're hearing, but then we need to go out and investigate the truth for ourselves, right? We need to go see what we're hearing um, through other sources and, 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 and verify those things. And Solomon um, certainly did that. 
And then he says, he set them in order. Set in order. That phrase is tachan. Tachan. It just means to make straight. Or he arranged those things. Um, remember twice in Ecclesiastes, he mentioned the, the crookedness of, of things, right? That there was wisdom that existed and wisdom was great, but it wasn't necessarily enough to straighten out the problems of, of life. He said that in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. Remember that? So he's saying that, that there are just some things that are crooked. So he spoke of these crooked things before. But he also spoke of it in light of God's uh, providence and his work, what God does. Sometimes things are just crooked because God has ordained them to be crooked, and there's just nothing you can do about it, right? And that was in chapter 7, verse 13. Consider the work of God, for who can make straight what he has made crooked? Right? So sometimes things appear crooked from our perspective, but God's providence has allowed it to be uh, so. But here's the idea. He's bringing that same kind of meaning in here when he says he set things in order. He's making them straight. What he's saying is, is this, that after, after we've pondered or we've weighed what we've heard and then we've sought out the truth, we have an opportunity to make some of that crooked teaching straight. Right? We can set those things in order. We can arrange them. And that is the work of a teacher. That's the work of a teacher. That's the work of the preacher. He, he's done those steps. And having taken the proper steps to, to, to ascertain true knowledge, the preacher taught the people knowledge. Does that make sense? So he, he wanted to make sure, first of all, that it was really true knowledge for himself. Then he... Um, taught that knowledge to the people. And Solomon, he says that he set in order many proverbs. If you, you know, think about what, what, what primarily fills scripture with Solomon, Solomon's words, are the, it's the book of Proverbs, right? They're, they're proverbs. Primarily, he taught in proverbs. The word proverbs is mashal, and it just means a sentence of, of ethical wisdom, or even a parable. And that was just Solomon's primary means of communicating the knowledge that he had uh, pondered over, sought out, and sort of set in order. That's what he used primarily. You can go back to the book of Proverbs, right? And you can read through. Uh, each chapter is chock full of knowledge, right? I mean, even one verse could have two different applicable Proverbs in it, couldn't it? So it's just really, really full. Now, notice that not only did he just take those things and teach those things verbally, but he also he wrote them down. Look at verse 10. The preacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright, words of truth. So he didn't just verbally take those things, he wrote them down. And he sought acceptable words, it says, uh, or pleasing words. Literally means words of delight. Um, choosing the right words is important, right? Because the words can have a penetrating effect. But we can't just choose words that are effective and then pair them up with untruth. Um, form and content both go together, don't they? So the words of the teacher must be acceptable words, right? Words of delight. But they also must be words of truth, right? And the two characteristics balance each other uh, out. Um, I, I think we've got to be aware of that even today as well. I was sent something earlier this week, right? And it was a, a, a pastor and he was you know, kind of just giving his, well, he wasn't kind of giving, he was giving his take on what was happening in the world. And he said, 
such flowery words at the beginning, you know, um, unequivocally, and he said ubiquitous about four times in the whole thing, and um, dispensation that we're in, and the gargantuan state of things, and just had a lot of flowery words at the beginning. But then he said, but this is not going to be a Bible study, I'm just going to tell you the facts of what's happening. So while they were uh, words of delight, it wasn't necessarily paired with truth, it was just paired with opinion. Does that make sense? So it's easy to kind of go, well, that's just another person's idea of what is going on. And here's the problem, too, is that then those people declare what they know to be happening, what God is doing. Now, if you've learned anything in the book of Ecclesiastes, hopefully you've learned that we can't know God's work. We can't know it. In Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 17, he said this, Then I saw all the work of God, go back to it a second, I saw all the work of God, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. Do you see that? You can't find it. You can labor to find it. And what's Solomon say? You still won't find it. That can be your whole goal right now is to say, what is God doing through this event in our lives right now? And guess what? You won't be able to find it. We don't know. Like I said before, he's probably doing a million things through this. But to come up and say, this is what he is doing and you all need to follow my advice. Uh, you're, very, you're on a slippery slope there. And I think we need to apply the wisdom of Solomon here as a teacher, right? He weighed the things that he heard. Then he sought out other knowledge to see if that's really true. Um, and then when he taught, you know, he did use good speech and effective penetrating words, but he paired it with truth. And that's what he does here. Proverbs twenty-two twenty says, Have I not written to you excellent things of counsels and knowledge? Those are Solomon's words. Isn't that what I've written to you? They're excellent things, but what are the excellent things of? Counsel and knowledge, wisdom and knowledge. So when done the right way, the words of the wise can have a really good effect, right? And that's what Solomon talks about here in verse 11. They can have a twofold effect. If you're taking notes, there's a twofold effect of the words of the preacher. Look at verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars are are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. So first he says they're like goads, okay? And the word goad there is only used uh, here in this uh, verse in Ecclesiastes and one other time in the Old Testament, it's 1 Samuel 13, 21, but we don't need to look it up because it just says goad. Probably the verse that is more understandable, we have to go to the New Testament. You might remember in Acts 9, 5, and again later in Acts 26, 14, um, I'll just recap it for you. But Saul, Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus, right? He sees, and well, he sees a great light. He's blinded by it. He hears the voice of the Lord. It's it's Jesus, and he says, "Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me?" And you remember what he says to him? Jesus says to to him, "It is hard for you to kick against the what? Goads." He uses the same word. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So what is a goad? What is he kicking against? Well, a goad was probably a, just a stake or a staff that had been sharpened into a point. Um, and a shepherd primarily used that tool. He used it to guide an animal in the right direction. Um, he would also use it to motivate a reluctant animal. You know, maybe like a donkey that wasn't going to move. You, know, you just poke that thing a few times, he's going to start moving. Um, or just to prod it forward. He also used it to chasten an animal um, who was insisting on veering off the wrong path. 
And so Jesus was just saying to, to Saul there that uh, he was guiding Saul in a certain direction, and it's very difficult to try to kick against the will of the Lord, right? That's my will as the shepherd. I'm guiding you, and it's very difficult to do what you're trying to do, to kick against my will. So you can see what Solomon is saying here. The words of a preacher, when they're properly uh, considered and then they're communicated, can act as, as a guide or a stimulus, right? They can guide us in the right direction and they can stimulate us to uh, right action. But notice, wise words do not only function as goads, they function as something else. What does it say there? Well-driven nails, well-driven nails. The word really just means peg, and it's only used here in the Old Testament, so I can't even give you another example uh, of it. But to understand that the function of the peg or the nail is, we need to understand who wields it. That will help you. So notice what it says there. They're well-driven nails um, given... I'm sorry. They're the words of the scholars. The words of the scholars are like well-driven nails. So the words of scholars literally says, and maybe you have a footnote in your Bible in the margin, says... Masters of assemblies um, or masters of collections or collected sayings. It's Hebrew parallelism that helps you understand what he's saying here. So words of the wise are like goads because we're looking at the words, right? The collected sayings, right? The, the, the master of assemblies are like nails. Does that make sense? It's parallelism. They're saying the same uh, thing. But, but words are like goads, and they're also like pegs. We know how they're like goads. I just gave you that example, right? They can, they can sort of guide us and stimulate us to action. But what does the, the function of the peg have in terms of words? Well, it holds us fast to the truth. It pegs us down. It anchors us in truth. It secures us in truth. When we listen to the words of the wise, when we listen to someone like Solomon give truth, we're more we're less likely to wander off from the path because we've got a guy that directs us, but also have something that anchors us. Does that make sense? We have both of those things happening. And to, for, for teaching purposes, it establishes the teaching in our memory. It anchors it there. It gives us a secure basis for, uh, for living. I remember our first uh, camping trip here in Wales. Was we, we first came and went to Creation Fest in 2013, and we just saw right away by the weather, there's no way we could just camp in this kind of weather. So we had a caravan we went with. But many people went there in tents, and we all camped in the same uh, proximity. The Farnham family was there. They had a few uh, less kids then. Um, the, the, the younger guys were there, so Rob Hall and, and James uh, Bufton and Tim Popplestone were in a tent. I can't remember if James Saldiva was there, but there was another tent of guys. And then uh, poor Ruth Hall was in a, a tent all her own, though she wasn't a Hall at the time. They weren't married. But uh, the evening came, the, this, this storm, I have never seen a storm like this come, where the wind and the rain were so just non-stop, buckets and buckets of rain coming down. And um, we're trying to sleep, and I'm just, the, the whole thing is rocking and shaking. And I could just hear all this commotion. I go outside, and all these men are out there trying to peg down tents that had just uprooted. Like, these guys are getting blown away. And guess whose tent was getting blown away, right? It was Rob's tent and James. They were all in that tent, and the thing was just going. So we rescued them. We said, hey, come in and stay in the, the caravan. The caravan had a little tent awning area, so they stayed in that area. Uh, and then we went and found the Farnums, but they were doing okay. They stayed there, and we went and found Ruth. Uh, I said, Ruth, you, you, you want to come in? She says, yes, please. You know, so we rescued her. So we had all these people packed in our caravan because the tent pegs weren't securing people to the ground. 
the room was so strong, it was blowing tents away. It was un- unbelievable. Never seen anything like that. But listen, the, 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 the turmoil we're in right now, there is so much information coming out, so much wisdom coming from all these different uh, teachers. You're liable to be blown away. You need to be anchored in truth. You need the words of the wise. You need to be pegged down, secure, anchored fast in truth, or you can get blown off the path. And I, I do worry about that for our church family, even as this sort of gains um, steam. Uh, we have to be careful, very careful and very wise during this time. Does that mean we don't read things? We don't, no, we, of course we do. But use the wisdom that we saw in Solomon. You know, weigh those things, investigate the truth of those things. Don't just bite it, sink it in, and run with it. Um, be very, very careful. Now, I want you to notice what he, um, what he says <clears throat> here. If you put all these things together, he says the words of the wise are like goads, so they guide us, right? And the words of scholars are like well-driven nails. They anchor us, given by one shepherd. Isn't that amazing? Given by one shepherd. What is the primary source of collected wisdom, words of knowledge, that have both the ability to guide us, direct us, encourage us, chasten us, and establish us and secure us. That's an easy Sunday school answer, isn't it? It's the Bible. It's God's word, right? And those words are given by one shepherd, capital S. Really, he's continuing the shepherding theme here, isn't he? Solomon reminds us of the source of all of this wisdom. Solomon is not saying, listen, this is just my own wisdom here. The words of the wise, the truly wise, that have pondered and sought out and set in order and have done all these things are using the wisdom of the one shepherd, the wisdom of God. And and certainly God is referred to as the shepherd of Israel. I mean, David said the Lord is my shepherd, didn't he? But in Psalm chapter 80, Verse 1, um, it says, uh, a psalm, it's a big introduction there. It says, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who dwell between the cherubim, shine forth. So here we can see that, that, that this shepherd of, of Israel, even though it doesn't say God, who this is, because who dwells between the cherubim? Where, where were the cherubim? Well, they were on the Ark of the Testimony, weren't they? The two angels that were fashioned on top of the Ark of the Testimony, that was behind the veil in the the Holy of Holies, right, in the tabernacle. That is where God dwelt. God dwelt between the the cherubim, the Holy of Holies. That's where he dwelt. And so that, that God is the shepherd of Israel. That's what that psalm is saying. In fact, in Psalm 95, verses 6 and 7, shepherd and creator are really combined into one. Look at this. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So there's the Lord as a maker, as creator. But verse 7 goes on. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. So notice that. You have the maker, the God, and then Instantly, the people are like sheep, right? And we're in the pasture of God. He's the shepherd. You see those two themes combined there. It is God's inspired word that Solomon is speaking about. Remember, Solomon wrote inspired scripture, right? We're reading some of it here. Uh, But it's God's inspired word that has these abilities. Listen, it is not man's wisdom. It's not psychology. 
It comes from God's word. That's the true words of knowledge. That's where we get it, uh, get it from. And if you're online and reading all these different things and dragged here, to, listen, you don't know the background of that person. You don't know the pedigree. You don't know where they're going from. You don't know where they're reading from. We, you, you, you're just in danger, and you just got to be careful. We need to make sure we're going to the inspired word of, of God. Now, just a note on this. Now, the preacher, he's just gone on about his, you know, his work and what he's done, and he's accomplished his his work, and he must be equipped and he must be qualified for, because it's a huge responsibility, a huge responsibility shepherding the people under his care with the word. I, you know, I, I'm not Solomon, uh, but I was definitely challenged by this passage this, this week. And while calling and skill and ability and those things are, are important to a degree, those things alone don't make someone a, a preacher. In fact, I want to read to you what John MacArthur says about that person. He says, a small amount of skill and ability alone will never enable a preacher to teach doctrine, expound on the deep things of God, convince the stubborn mind, capture the affections and will, or spread light over dark realities so as to eliminate the shadows of confusion, ignorance, objections, prejudice, temptation, and deceit. Above all, if the preacher is to detect the errors of his hearers, and if he is to to free men from their strongholds of ignorance, convince their consciences, stop their mouths, and fulfill his responsibility to proclaim all the counsel of God, he must be skilled in the word. This is the preacher's only weapon, the most powerful two-edged sword of the word, which alone cuts to the depths of the soul and the spirit. The only tool I really have at my disposal is God's word. And it is enough. That's all we need. Seek teachers that preach the whole counsel of God. Men may speak with eloquence and passion. They may be fervent of spirit and speak of high and lofty things. But if his uh, acceptable words are not the full counsel of God, then it must be rejected. And that sums up the preacher's work. That's the preacher's work. But what about man's work? Man is the other character in Solomon's book, isn't it? He's been talking to man and and man's life and living under the sun. What do you sum up for him? What has been his main work? Well, look at verse 12. And further, my son, be admonished by these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is wearisome to the flesh. Now, Solomon is giving a warning here. Um, That's what admonished means. And many books of the Bible do end with a warning, right? If you were to read Romans and get to the end of chapter 16, you'd come across a warning. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 would end with a warning. 1 Timothy 6 would end with a warning as well. 1 John 5. It's not an unusual thing, but I'm going to take you to Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19. Also ends with a warning. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Well, what's the warning there? Well, the warning there is to don't add to what God has revealed in his word, obviously, and don't uh, remove anything that God has revealed in his word. We don't add to it. We don't take away uh, from it. But what's what's the warning Solomon is trying to get us to see here? Well, Look at that verse again. Further, my son, be admonished by these of making many books, there is no end. And much study is wearisome to the flesh. Don't, don't seek answers 
beyond those that God has already given in his word. That's, that's really it. Um, you know, even in Solomon's day, writing was in abundance. You might not think so, but writing was in existence since 3500 BC. You had cuneiform tablets and you had, you know, the clay uh, tablets later and then, you know, eventually papyrus and, and leather. Uh, but it, it, evidently, even in Solomon's time, there was so much literature available that Solomon thought to warn against it um, because it didn't come from the one shepherd. And I want to warn you today as well. There is much out there that's circulating through the world that doesn't come from the one shepherd. Many other faiths exist, right? Um, the writing that they listen to doesn't come from the one shepherd. Um, and there's much that we can just tune into. We don't even know where it comes from. Well, Paul encourages us when he encourages Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 2-3. to We looked at this verse last week, I know, but really fits what we're talking about today. He says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. If you are trying to find answers through other teachers and their many books, there's going to be no end to your study. You'll wear yourself out. That's what Solomon's saying. It's wearisome to the flesh. You can search and search and search. And if you have itching ears, you, you, you'll find what you're looking for, but you'll, you'll never find true knowledge. You'll, you'll wear yourself out trying to find it. So he says, be admonished by what I'm telling you. Um, you need to be listening to the words of the one shepherd. You, you can search for other words, but it's a wearisome task. Verse 13. Here's where he really gets to the conclusion for man's work. So that's just an admonishment going into man's work. So what is your work then? Don't wear yourself out. That's not the work. That's going to make you exhausted. What's the work for man? Here's, here's it. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Here's what it boils down to. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. Solomon has already touched on the fact that man needs to fear God. It's not a new Thing. I mean, in fact, if you just want to review, if you just go back through Ecclesiastes, really briefly, look at chapter 3, verse 14. Um, it says there, I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Because <laughs> you're, you're not going to change it, right? Nothing can be added to it. Nothing taken from it. God does it that man should fear before him. And that was an early conclusion, right? God does all these things. You can't change it. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. And the reason he does that is to get you to the conclusion of the whole matter, which is to fear him. In chapter 5, verse 7, again, he says, In the multitude of dreams and many words, this is also vanity, but fear God. Right? You can look for answers in all those other things and dreams and visions and all those things, but, but ultimately, fear God. Again, you'll wear yourself out with those things. Again, in chapter 8, he brought it up in verses 12 to 13. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times, and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Those were earlier conclusions. Here's what I know. He said, I just know it's going to be well with those who just choose to fear, fear God. It won't be well with the wicked. So he says, this is man's all. Fear, fear God. And keep his commandments. 
Now, this is the first time commandments is, um, of God are used in Ecclesiastes. He hasn't used that before. And so he sums up man's work with these two things. Fear God, keep his commandments. What's he really saying here? Two things must occupy the thoughts of men. All right? I'm just going to replace those two words with what the ultimate meaning is. Fear God really means, this is what should occupy your thought, God's greatness. That's what should occupy your thoughts. When he says fear God, remember he says, you know, you you just can't understand what's going on in the world. You can't add to it. You can't change it. And God does that so that you'll fear him. Not so that you'll spend your life trying to figure it out. You'll spend every waking moment searching the internet trying to find the answers, right? Or whatever. He's like, you're just going to make yourself worn out. What he wants you to do from all this is to fear him. And that should lead you to an understanding. God, God is greater than I am. He is great. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So, we know that verse. Very familiar, right? That's the fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. But it comes from knowledge of the Holy One, proper understanding of the unchanging power and justice of God. It, 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 that leads to a reverent fear of Him. That's, that's where it naturally takes us. So when we say fear of God, what you really should be occupying your thought, I'm not saying cower in a corner and be fearful of him. Just reflect upon his greatness. God is greater than you. The second thing when we say obey his commandments, what is he saying uh, there? Well, that's just, that's enjoy God's word. So enjoy his greatness and enjoy his word, right? A knowledge of God would naturally lead to obedience. And we don't, Christians don't go to God's word and find all these constrictions. We don't go and they go, oh, darn it, I wish I knew that before I joined up. I can't do that. Oh, I can't do this uh, either. No, that's not how it's done. When we understand God's greatness, we come and we, we want to know more about God. We, we look at what pleases him and we desire to do his will. Our conduct is determined by who or what we worship. And if God's greatness is not what you worship, your conduct is going to be determined by what you do worship. You, you are a worshiper. You do worship something. You do worship someone. The question is, who or what is that? He says, this is the duty of all mankind. Fear God. Keep his commandments. Now, I'm going to kind of integrate this going into verse uh, 14 to, to wrap it up, but it's important here. So that's, that's, that's man's work summed up. So you have the preacher He's saying his primary purpose to this whole thing was to teach the people, and I've done that. I've accomplished my mission. What's man, mankind's goal? Ultimately, what you're, are you to do, right? It's you're to, you're to fear God and keep his commands. And the reason is because God's work can be understood. Now you say, wait, hold on a second. You just said that there's no way we can understand what God does. We can't understand his work. You're right. We don't know the working of God. We do know what he's revealed to us as his work. And Solomon boils it down to this one thing. If you want to know what it is God is doing or is going to do, this is it. Verse 14. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is God's work. So we've gone from man's work into God's work. It's our duty to fear and obey him because God's going to judge our works. Now, some of you might be saying, well, then how is this any different than other religions? How is this any different than, say, uh, Islam? I mean, Allah desires no relationship with his servants. 
uh, he only wants subjects to, who, who do his bidding, and if, if they don't uh, do it, you know, they, it's obey or suffer judgment. I mean, it sounds very similar, right? It isn't. Why? Because God wants relationship with you. That's what Solomon is trying to get you to see. He wants relationship with you. He came to earth to make that clear. Allah didn't do that. Allah would never lower himself to the place of a man. That's just so beyond. Yet God has done that. And you might remember in John chapter 10, it wasn't that long ago we were in the gospel of John. Jesus, right, God in the flesh himself, calls himself the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. Our shepherd, the one true shepherd, calls us to fear him because if we're left to our own devices, we blindly run into danger. We are like sheep, aren't we? But he comes as a shepherd. He, he comes as one who wants to guide us. You don't, you don't find that in other religions. You don't have a God who comes and wants to guide you and protect you and to keep you on the right path. We, we make choices based off of worldly wisdom and another type of fear, fear of man. That, that's our natural uh, inclination. But instead, he calls us to obey him. Listen, fear me. Think about my greatness. Think about how great and good I am, and you'll want to obey me. Uh, I, you know, it's through obedience that we are kept safe and that we find the path of blessing. Um, and it is a blessed thing to be in the will of God. But yes, let me just say, God will judge. He will. And Solomon, he boils it down here. He says, God's going to judge because, well, he's God and he can do that. And only God knows every secret thing, says in verse 14. God's justice will come out. We want God's justice. We want justice. We see so much uh, evil in the world. We want someone to come and give justice. Well, God is going to come and do that. So it actually should be a good thing for us. It's not, oh no, God, oh, God's going to come and punish all these. He, he is coming to do justice to the universe. And I just want to tell you, he is coming to judge good and evil. And what's he speaking about here is there's two judgments, two ju- judgments that are going to come. And, and the first is for uh, unbelievers. It's called the great white throne judgment. And you'll find it in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. We're not going to read that today. But after the millennial reign of Christ here on earth, after Jesus has, has reigned on earth for a thousand uh, years, then every unbelieving person, and yes, there will be unbelieving people, because after a thousand years, people propagate, and there will be unbelievers, even with Jesus physically reigning on earth. Uh, every unbelieving person who is alive in that millennial kingdom and who has died throughout all of human history, will be, they'll, they'll be resurrected. They'll all be gathered together at the great white throne judgment. And Revelation tells us that they'll be judged according to their works. Um, and so God's going to cast them to the lake of fire. And the reason I, I, I say that, it's not a, a balance of good versus evil. Their works are not going to be placed in some scale and say, oh, I hope it was enough good works. The works to reveal is that they did no works for him. That God had absolutely no control, no influence over their lives whatsoever. They never acknowledged him as a creator. Instead, they chose to worship themselves as God. And that's what Romans chapter 1 tells us. That's why he says the wrath of God is coming to all the unrighteousness of men because they chose to, well, exchange the worship of God that would naturally go to God and worship themselves and the creation. It's people who have said in their hearts, I have no shepherd over me. I am my own shepherd. I don't need guidance. I don't need direction. I don't need correction. Those are the people 
that will be gathered together at the great white throne judgment. That's to judge all the evil. But there will be another judgment, and that is the judgment seat of Christ, which is also called the Bema seat judgment, and you can read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, 10 to 15. You can also read about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, but I'll just show you two verses today, verses 9 and 10. It says that, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So this is the Bema seat judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. It is a judgment of believers. And I know many of you know that, but I I do want to remind you that this is not a judgment of condemnation. Because Romans 8 tells us that, that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And it's not, uh, you don't receive condemnation because you have received justification, okay? You've been justified in the courtroom of God. As God is exercising his justice, as believers, you're justified. You're not guilty. You already have that. So what is this about? What is this? Well, this is a, a judgment of reward. This is to say, what have you done for the kingdom? And I would like to reward that. We don't have anything to fear that. And many, this is not foreign to us. We have this in our own uh, business world today. If you work a job somewhere, you have a boss. You have someone who is, is your superior that you, you work uh, for. Now, yes, Scripture tells us that ultimately we work for uh, Christ, right? We, we do it to glorify Him and not just be people pleasers, but we also do it to honor our, our uh, earthly masters. And certainly when we are working hard for them, we can expect to receive certain benefits, can't we? We can look forward to certain bonuses or raises or maybe promotions in our, in our work, certain accolades from the co-workers and from our superiors, etc. Those, those kinds of things aren't, aren't foreign to us. We certainly understand that. That's the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to receive the same kind of thing. We are rewarded for what we've done on earth. So what he is saying is, God's work is summed up in this. God is ultimately just going to exercise his justice. Solomon has focused a lot throughout this on the meaninglessness of life and the vanity of life and all the injustices of this world. And he says, but the conclusion is this. You just focus on this. God's going to focus on that, right? You just fear God. You obey him. God's going to make it all work out in the end. And he'll have blessing and reward for you. What's the meaning of life? What is the conclusion of the whole matter here? Well, the certainty that there is a God whose ways are, are difficult to understand and mysterious, uh, and the certainty that God will hold us accountable for how we, we spent our, our days on this, this planet, well, those two things give you meaning. Those two things give you purpose because they are certain, meaning they're irrevocable, and they matter for eternity. To fear God and to live for him no matter what your, your portion in life means uh, or your portion in life gives, it, it means it gives meaning to life where we really find meaninglessness. We see vanity. You may look around the world today and just see a whole lot of vanity, right? What is the purpose of all this? What is the meaning of all this? Solomon's saying, look above that. He's finally taken us to the ultimate vertical view above the sun. We are rising above the horizontal plane. Yes, if you look at the things of happening in the world, you look there, you only see hopelessness, vanity, 
doesn't mean anything at all. But when you raise your eyes above that, you look above the sun, you have a vertical view and you see your creator, what he desires of you and how he is going to make it all right in the end, that gives you meaning. You know how to live this life now. You know that you can live for him. You know that you have purpose. Isn't that amazingly free? God is so good that he would give Solomon this kind of wisdom that he would be able to share with us the very simple truths, right? That even in a a difficult time that we find ourselves in uh, today, everyone's trying to figure out what's going on and what's that. Listen, can I just encourage you? Your purpose hasn't changed. Your your, your whole meaning of life, it it hasn't changed. Yeah, Jesus could be coming back tomorrow. It hasn't changed. It shouldn't change anything in your behavior. If it has, then that should show you something about your previous behavior. It probably wasn't where it needed to be. We should be living as if God, Jesus could return any day, at any moment, right? But it also doesn't mean I'm going to go sell all my possessions and quit my job and, you know, like leave my family. Not at all. I continue to live my life in the fear of God, in obedience to his commands, wanting to please my master, knowing that in the end, he is going to do it all right. He's going to figure it all out. He's the one that is in control. I ultimately fear him. I don't fear man. Can I just encourage you today as we conclude this wonderful book, don't fear man and don't fear the events of this world. Fear God. And what I mean by that is be absorbed with his greatness and the goodness of his word. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for this time in your word today. And I thank you for the words of Solomon and the wonderful study we've enjoyed through Ecclesiastes. I know I've just uh, been so uh, challenged by the study of this and um, even just uh, preparing for this and sharing it, Lord. And I, I, I just pray that your, your church has been as well. But they also that they've been encouraged, that they find themselves um, maybe at a, at a time in their lives uniquely more so where, where things that just don't seem to make sense and everyone's trying to make it all work out in their minds and figure out what's happening, Lord. Ultimately, ultimately, we know you're in control. We ultimately know that mankind is quickly heading for judgment and you as the good judge will do what good judges do. And you'll judge good and you'll judge evil and all you require from us here now, Lord, is just to live in your goodness and your greatness. We love you. We praise you for your word. We praise you for this time. And we pray that your people we bless and encourage today for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.